Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So this time of day on the schedule, it says uh, Dharma talk. And in this all now for 40 years or so, people have been giving some thing called Dharma talk. I have sat here and listened to many of them myself in many locations on different retreats. And as coming here, I was thinking, you know, it's actually something like um, an activity that I enjoy that also is uh, somewhat of a spiritual practice for me, which is I'm um, singing karaoke. <laughs> in which, uh, you know, there's a, a karaoke bar near my house, in which a uh, queer karaoke bar, actually, in which uh, whoever wants to can come there and then, um, you know, pick songs and then sing them in their own stylings in some way. And one of the great things about this place is that people will come up and do, you know, very original versions of um, pop songs or Broadway songs or Disney songs or something, kind of bringing their own uh, spin on it and often playing with gender and uh, words and some people on key, some people off key. Um, But it's very beautiful to see this uh, kind of manifestation in these different songs of uh, people's uh, life, you know, the life force. So in some way I feel like we all come up here and for 2,600 years we've been talking about the same thing, the Dharma, you know. And then now this human being gets up here with all of that conditioning and shows up and sings in some way the same song, hopefully, (laughs) consistent, but uh, in some ways in some uh, new way. So uh, I hope I'm on key enough uh, today. So first place I'd like to start is where often I like to start the Dharma talk, which is the what is Dharma itself? This teachings of the, the Buddha called Dharma. And one of the translations of it is about the truth of the way things are, so about nature. So it can seem like hard work, what it is that we're doing here in the meditation, and like we're trying to figure something out, and trying to understand something that's difficult or hidden, or trying to change our mind or train it. And sometimes it helps to hold that what we're doing is trying to understand a nature, And this is something that we have done in different ways in our life. Learning about nature, learning about the truth of the way things are, and then trying to live in alignment with that as best we can. So there are examples of ways in which we've already done this and which we have to do this in our life. And one uh, common example is through the law of gravity. So babies, for example, don't know about the law of gravity. And you can see them sometimes playing with, experimenting with this law of gravity. And I was recently around a baby who was doing this, uh, one of my cousin's kids. And so they're being fed and then they throw things off and watch them fall and see like, oh, look, okay, that fell, right? And then like, what happens on this side? Like, oh yeah, okay, same thing, you know? And then what happens if you're not looking also, you know? (laughs) Same thing happens. And so after a while you get the picture, like that's, this is, uh, seems to be something about the way the universe uh, works, is that when you try to place things in midair, 
if you drop them, they seem to be drawn inexorably to the ground for some reason. And it doesn't even matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter if someone is running it. It doesn't matter if you know the mathematical formula for it. Uh, it only matters that you understand, like, oh yeah, this is some aspect of uh, the the way things are, and so then you try to live in accordance with it. So if I want to place this striker somewhere, I know it's going to be more successful to place it on the table rather than in midair. And if you have something like a glass of water, then even more important, if you place it in midair, it breaks, there's a mess, there's splashing and broken glass. And um. So we learn aspects of this truth of the way things are through our practice, through paying attention. And, and what the Buddha understood was through his own experimentation, his own checking out, his own learning about this. And the more that we become aligned with this, the more we lead lives that are in harmony, that have less suffering for ourselves and for others, the less messes there are in our life, less broken glass and splashed water and so on. And if we understand this, then even if it happens sometime, for example, like, you know, accidentally this pen gets knocked off here, because I understood that, that particular law of gravity, then it doesn't surprise me that that happened. And I don't have to uh, relate to that in the same way as when it was a total surprise. So it doesn't have to be like, why me? Why now? Why did this happen? You know, It happened, and so then you understand it, so you can just pick it up, put it back, and minus the added dramatic uh, add-ons that are unnecessary in our life. So let's talk a little bit about what are these things that we have to discover? You know, what is this that we're learning about that's important? Because there are many different things we could learn about. So particularly in the Vipassana practice, we're tuning in with mindfulness, with awareness, to what's happening in our mind and body through the six sense doors. And we're trying to cultivate a clarity about what it is that's happening in each moment and particularly interested in this process, the process of the unfolding of life, and the process of unfolding who I call myself. Now, what is true about this? And one of the different things about this is that usually we're fully engaged in the content of that. So rather than being interested in the fact that a thought has arisen and that it comes and it goes, we're fully engaged in the story of that thought. So here we're trying to be interested in the process of that, which then reveals several aspects that the Buddha highlighted as ones that can help us lead lives that are of greater harmony. So among these are these three characteristics. First one is that everything is changing, anicca. So as I mentioned in the first day, what we call our life is the rapid succession of these different sense experiences, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, and experiences in the mind. And they're just flowing on, you know, from the time of birth. Our life has been this rapid succession of these, unstoppable. Even when you sleep, usually you lose the experience of directly of the body, but then Sometimes you have experiences of the mind, like dreaming, for example. And if mindfulness can become stronger, it's very interesting to notice even those moments, particularly the moment of, of waking up from sleep, 
uh, what happens and, and check it out yourself if you are interested but that uh, suddenly the experience of the body starts to appear again you know the the appearance of the body shows up in uh, awareness again and then there's the the body and the mind together so from the time you came here on uh, Friday it maybe seems like a long time ago now right you could reflect like all the different stuff that has happened or gone through the mind and body or even just in one day so this morning when you got up it's a lot cooler maybe you were sleepy you could remember maybe what your uh, mood was at that time maybe you were excited to be on retreat maybe you had to bring grumpy mind to the hall for early morning sitting then maybe you had a group or had a work meditation to do a number of different sittings and in each sitting it could have been a similar thing that seemed to be going on or it could have been totally different worlds that have arisen you know one could have been the full on sleepy uh birth that happened commonly this is like the 215 sitting right <laughs> after lunch uh one could have been the worrying time a lot of worry comes um, and it's always changing so just even reflecting on the vast amount of physical different experiences mental experiences stuff that you thought about stuff that you worried about emotions food that you took in all of this and it's all changing 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 and that's going to be true for the rest of our lives so that one is a little more understandable intellectually right intellectually you can get behind that this stuff is all changing yeah the next one kind of a corollary to that is that uh, because everything's already always changing there's a lack of solidity to everything and everyone and every experience and the one that it's most relevant to notice this about is that which we call ourselves but we can talk about this for example uh with this table So this table is here and it's helping me to keep this striker here and the uh, papers and things. And for the moment it's a table, we could agree that it's made of wood. But at some point in the past this was a tree somewhere. It's wooden, so that was actually a tree. It grew from the ground from maybe a seed, got bigger, eventually uh, maybe some birds lived in the tree. it was cut down maybe turned into planks and then they were taken to probably factory and made into this table so for the moment it's a table but it's getting a little bit rickety here and after a while at IMS they might decide it's time to uh, retire this it's coming up to the 40th anniversary so maybe that they'll be get a new gift of a nice table for this so at that point you know maybe the table will get relegated to the basement and then after a while it'll fall apart and then it'll get thrown out eventually and eventually it will actually return to the ground you know it will become pulp uh, it'll become hacked up pulp and then return to the ground in some way and that's kind of the life cycle of this table so we can use the concept table and that's actually true but that's a temporary moment in this yeah the moment in this is table and and this is true of everything so everything and everyone is actually constantly in motion you know, this entire room 
the walls are made of substance that's like pulverized stone minerals. This ground is made of uh, trees that are temporarily here as floor. You're sitting on things that are made of uh, cotton, of plants. All of these things are here now, but are, as we speak, in the process of disintegrating. Uh, Everything is basically falling apart all the time. (laughs) And that includes you. (laughs) So this brings us to the third one, uh, which is uh, dukkha. So that uh, there is this unreliability of all phenomenon, including that which we call ourselves. And sometimes then the, it's translated as dukkha, as like suffering and unsatisfactoriness, stress, strain, uh, many different words that are used to describe this. The, in the Buddha's time, this was uh, a word also used to describe when a wheel of a wagon was not fitting perfectly with the axle. So then it was going around like a little bit off. Or I think sort of modern equivalent is like if if you have a table like this, and this one's pretty good, but sometimes you sit in a cafe and one of the legs is up a little bit. So you're sitting there and you put your elbow and it goes, you know, and then every now and then. Then maybe you try and stick napkins or something under, you know. But there's something like a little bit off in that. Now sometimes it's a lot off, right? Sometimes this aspect of the unsatisfactoriness of life is incredibly apparent to us. And one of the things that we learn as we tune in, in Dharma and Dharma practice, is becoming intimately familiar with dukkha, with strain, stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness of the body, of the mind, of our relationship to phenomenon. And this can be hard work, this can be difficult. But it's actually very noble work. And this is described by the Buddha as a noble truth, first noble truth of suffering, of dukkha, is to be understood. So we don't often, uh, you know, put that in the description, like the first day of retreat, you will come and become intimate with suffering. That is what (laughs) Narayana was saying. (laughs) And yet, for many, this is what uh, happens. You know, you get to see the mind in all of its unvarnished glory and part of the structure of retreat, the brilliant and yet also sometimes challenging structure is that we've removed like almost everything that you could use as a distraction otherwise. So the same mind and the same thing is happening in regular life but we don't notice, number one, because we're not paying attention and number two, because we have a lot of like escape routes we take. So we'll go to watch TV to entertain ourselves. We'll try and talk to someone. Uh, maybe for some it's uh, taking a drink, getting busy, running around a lot. But the structure of our retreat is actually designed to reveal dukkha, is designed to not make you suffer more, but actually reveal that which is already there, baked into the warp and woof of our existence. So even the very simple act of sitting for 
half an hour for 45 minutes, which is on our schedule many times. It's a very courageous act because what we're saying is let us sit and be present with whatever it is that arises in the body and in the mind as best we can. And some people's ideas about meditation based on, you know, nice statues or seeing uh, videos or something like that of peaceful looking people is that the only things that will happen are good things, peacefulness and calm and joy. But you know better. (laughs) So what happens when you sit down is an incredible mixed bag. And it includes such unglamorous things as body pain, as memories of the past that are unpleasant, as fantasies, all kinds of emotions, a whole range of thoughts, worry about the future, ruminating on past wrongs and hurts, the whole wide penalty. And then our job is to sit there and try to be present as best we can. So it requires a lot of courage and it also requires a lot of honesty. Because many times we have an idea of who we are, we have an idea of what we can be with. And we've designed our lives in some way outside of retreat so that we can uh, live within that realm. You know, we can be actually in a certain uh, comfort zone, physically, mentally, psychologically. So when things come up that are difficult for us, we're used to trying to push them away. We're used to uh, creating comfort, dismissing things that don't work for us. So what's wrong with that? You know, what's wrong with that if, uh, if you're able to work that out? So one is that there are some things in life that you cannot actually get away from, that you're not going to be able to squirm away from. And this is an aspect of the Dharma that is uh, facing the real truths about our lives, that since we take birth, we're all on some journey towards getting older and eventually towards death. And for most of us, this involves uh, having some amount of body pain, sickness, uh, until the point at which we expire. So American society, we don't like to talk about this too much. Uh, we cannot try to put it aside. But in Dharma practice, this is about paying attention to what's really true. And that includes like being able to make peace with these things now. You know, being able to courageously face these aspects of our life. So some of the reflections, for example, that the Buddha has encouraged us to take on is that all that is mine, all that I love, all that is beloved to me, from this I surely will be parted. So all of my possessions will eventually break or get stolen or or I will die before them, but you know, you can't take it with you. Even all of the relationships of our life, you know, life grows and changes and we all grow and change. And if you think about the friends that you had when you were a child, you know, where are those relationships? Your best friend from grade five, maybe. Or your teacher who was very important to you in one period of life. Your roommate in college, if you went to college, or young adulthood. 
even for some people, their spouse or uh, children. And even if these people, quote-unquote, stay in our lives, they change. We change, they change. You know, nothing stays the same. So there's really a poignancy to this, that everything is kind of going up in smoke all the time, shifting, 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 and there's nowhere actually to stand. So this, this dukkha sounds like bad news, <laughs> but it's just news. <laughs> it's just true. And so then we try to uh, meet this with as much honesty and courage as we can. And we see the ways in which our mind usually responds or reacts to this, which oftentimes is with a certain amount of fear or struggle or trying to control things to keep things the way they are. It's, it's very um, touching or, yeah, just very poignant, I think, to see this, the way the mind is trying to do this all the time. You're trying to create safety in an ever-changing world. You're trying to create security. So there's this phrase of, uh, and a practice of, you know, going for refuge. And you can see all these ways in which we go for refuge to things that are not actually reliable. We go for refuge to a certain status in life or having a certain kind of body, a certain kind of beauty, a certain amount of money. We go for refuge to relationships with other human beings in which both of us are changing all the time. We have these ideas that I'm not happy now, but when I only get this job or this apartment or this partner, then I'll be happy. And yet every single thing that we've achieved in this way, all of our life has not actually brought that. So the path of dharma turns us inwards to recognize, well, what is happiness? What is the cause of happiness? What is the source of this? And the answer that the Buddha gave is kind of a cut to the chase you know, kind of thing. Like we're looking everything externally for this sense of happiness. We're trying to find all these props in this ever-changing show. But when we really pay attention, we can say, Happiness and suffering, they all exist in the mind, in our relationship to experience, in the way that the mind responds to things, in that which shows up in the mind. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this um, thing that's called karma and what the recommendations are for if we can influence this ever-changing stream of experience, what is it that we can influence? How do we do that? And what are the possibilities in this life? So this is the good news part of the (laughs) talk, hopefully. (coughs) So I mentioned in the, um, I think during the metta time, the 
one of the things the Buddha said is, you know, that which we think and ponder upon frequently, this becomes the inclination of our mind. So this is a tremendous thing to understand that the stream of the mind actually has some changeability, some possibility of change within it. And it's through the mental cultivation that there is an opportunity to develop the mind in ways that lead towards greater wisdom, happiness, love. So connecting with the ethical conduct that uh, we took together in the beginning of the retreat, one of the keys to this is noticing what are the ways in which I habitually act and speak in my life? What are the things that I do that I regret and what are the things that I do that I feel happy about? How does that play out? So one of the recipes for this cultivation is as much as possible to try to act and speak from wholesome states of heart and mind. So wholesome being compassion, generosity, love, kindness. And when we don't, which will happen pretty good amount of the time, to try to notice that to actually allow yourself to feel the burn of that. You know, allow yourself to feel the, the suffering of that. And allow that to fuel one's incentive and one's own resolve to change that in the future, to pay more attention. At the same time, we're trying to cultivate collectedness of mind so we actually can track what is happening. We're cultivating this sense of mindfulness, of awareness, of presence, so that we know what's here. We're cultivating a balance of heart and mind, equanimity, a deep groundedness, so we don't get knocked around as much by circumstance. We are cultivating a sense of calm, so tranquility of mind. And then one of the unique aspects of the Buddhist path is about cultivating this quality of investigation, you know, curiosity of understanding. So checking it out yourself. So all these things that I'm describing to you and that Pascal talked about are ones that we can see, like, oh, is, is this actually true? Can I observe this in my experience? The more that we know this on a deeper and deeper level, not just intellectual level, but a deeper and deeper level of direct knowing, you know, the more that influences our ability to manifest that. So other ways of influencing the stream of mind is recognizing what are the qualities of mind and heart that we would like to have, that we'd like to cultivate, and to reflect on and to find people in one's life, in one's orbit, who actually have these qualities of heart and mind. So finding wise friends. It's much easier, for example, to engage in habits that we don't feel so good about when we're around people who are also doing those habits. 
So it's very difficult, for example, if you're trying not to drink alcohol, to hang around people for whom drinking alcohol is a central part of socializing. It's very difficult to not yell at people when you're in an environment in which people speak to each other in a very harsh tone, or not to gossip, or any number of things like that. So as part of a strategy for spiritual development, uh, for me, I feel like it's good to find the best people I can, find people who are better than me, in fact, (laughs) and try and hang around them as much as possible. When I say better, I'm like uh, mean basically to find people who have qualities of heart and mind that I admire, appreciate, uh, that I would like to cultivate more myself, and to spend time around them. And this includes, you know, actual human people, but also through the books that I read, through things that I, uh, videos that I view, you know, all of that stuff. Recognizing that taking all this stuff in influences the mind. So it's a little bit like you are trying to sort of raise yourself. And uh, some of you might be, have been parents of teenagers. All of us were teenagers at some point. And uh, parents are often like worried at that stage of like, okay, who's my kid hanging around? Like, what are they up to? And uh, is it going to be a good influence on them? Is it going to be a bad influence on them? And sometimes they might be like, I don't want you to hang out with that kid. Or I don't want you to go to that corner. Or, you know. Now you may or may not have complied with that as a teenager. But in some ways, we want to train our mind, like check it out, like how we're, we're living, who we're hanging out with, you know, what kind of influences we have in the same way. So this includes in our modern world, you know, what are the influences that we take in uh, through media? You know, what kind of music do we listen to? What kind of movies do we watch? Uh, what do we read online? How much do we read online? Do we engage in uh, flaming comment wars on websites or something? Yeah. So in, uh, in the, the precepts, this is somewhat around communication, uh, but also in the, the precepts, it also kind of falls into the fifth area of uh, observing what is our diet observing what it is that we take in in our world and how that influences our mind and heart. So one of the radical things here is this, uh, this question I talked about in the beginning of the retreat that's like, well, who am I when no one's telling me who I am? Yeah. And who am I when I don't have to constantly project that out? And some of what we see when we sit quietly and observe that is stuff that we feel good about and okay about. And some of that which we see is something that's difficult. So a very common occurrence on retreat is that you get this life review going on in some way. And you've been here for a couple of days, you might have gotten this in some fits and starts of remembering things even from like far back of things that you've done uh, to someone or something someone has done to you and how that made you feel. And when these things come up, notice, because this is also something around these, the way of action and speech in the world. 
You know, something to learn about that. Like the things that have hurt us are usually when someone has spoken harshly to us, uh, physically harmed us, taken something from us, some difficult sexual experience that's harmful. And then likewise, we remember things that we ourselves have done. So I remember sitting here on the three-month course one time and remembering something that I did in, in grade school you know, that was not skillful, we say. I had not thought about that for, you know, like 20 years at all. And yet sitting here in the silence, there was this unraveling, and I felt the burn of that, you know, of saying something mean to someone, of hurting someone else. So this too is a sign of, uh, of karma, of cause and effect. We take actions, we plant seeds, and the reverberations of that can be so wide. You know, they, can, they can spill out hugely for years and years for us, for ourselves and others. So it's also very poignant to me is that um, the Buddha pointed out, you know, all beings wish to be happy. We all want this happiness. We all seek this peace. And yet we don't know the way to get there. And so most of us are kind of bumbling around in the world, trying to do our best to machinate that, but we don't really have the recipe. So this is what is responsible for most of the pain and suffering in the world. The results of human beings trying to do what they think will bring them security, happiness, well-being, but doing something that's not in accordance with the truth of the way things are. So basically trying to build buildings in midair and them falling over and over again. And as we start to see this more and more, it's not like the first time you see it, it's just gonna stop. There's a momentum of habits of mind, of delusion, you could say, habits of mind, of not seeing clearly what is skillful, what is unskillful. So a lot of our practice is this somewhat painful process observing our mind playing out things that we know are not really helpful, and yet still it's going on. So in seeing these things, it can be very humbling, and more and more that's what arises for me in observing the mind and its patterns. There's a selflessness to the arising of these patterns, and the power of them can be so strong even if you know that this is not something that you want to do. So for example, you might have decided that uh, you weren't going to go back and take a second chocolate ball at lunch a few days ago. You had one that was good, you should leave it for others. Yeah. And then even during the meal, the, the mind right, is recalling, like, what about another chocolate ball? (laughs) I wonder how many chocolate balls there were. (laughs) Should I go get one now? Will that look greedy? (laughs) 
So you don't want to be thinking these thoughts, but these thoughts are arising and uh, trying to pay attention to the less glamorous food that's in front of you that you're eating. You know, trying to give some loyalty to your uh, chili or whatever it was, and brown rice. And then sometimes you find yourself walking by and just like getting one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny to see this happening. And also, you know, it's very humbling. Like it's very humbling to see this, uh, this playing out. And it reminds me of uh, when I was, of some little nieces and we were teaching them how to eat a, a cupcake and teaching them like you peel the wrapper like this, you know, and then you take a bite, right? And so in the actual practice of it, like, you know, I got the peeling part and then it was like, boom. It's <laughs> 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 so like the mind was trained like a certain extent like this and then just like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see this with little kids with a certain amount of um, kindness and like, okay, all right, they don't quite have not quite mastered that uh, that area. So hopefully we try and apply this to ourselves, you know, to seeing the way in which we play out these patterns of dukkha, we play out these patterns of uh, craving, we play out these patterns of uh, dislike for things. And the energy of them can be st- so strong that we can observe it and know that we're not supposed to be doing it and still, you know, the right is happening. So some people ask some uh, questions in our groups about, you know, so I notice these things. I notice anger, I'm noticing fear. It tells us to be with that being with that energy of it, but like, what's the next step? And underneath what's the next step was like, how do I get rid of this, right? Like, how do I make this stop? And the difficult answer to that, the somewhat painful answer is like, become more intimate with the truth of what that is like. You have to see in full blazing glory, the pain of these patterns, sometimes over and over again, you know, before we're able to necessarily unhook, uh, change them. There's been long periods of time in which that's just been the habit of mind. You know. So it's good to just be happy when you start to see it sooner and sooner. You know, maybe you see it uh, a little bit before it's completely played out. Or maybe there's a few moments of spaciousness in between this pattern rolling on. You know, that's great, right? Maybe then you start to see when the beginnings of this pattern arise. You catch on to it before it's fully played out. Maybe sometimes you're able to see it and it seems actually much larger and bigger than before. There's definitely a stage of practice where it seems like, oh, it got worse, you know? Actually, it's just like you became more aware of it. (laughs) But it seems like it got worse. So in all of this, just trying to bring some interest, curiosity, and a real compassion for our human condition. The other dimension that has been helpful for me is whenever we see something like this that's coming up, that's difficult, whether it's a pattern of anger or uh, greed or some other kind of delusion, there often can be a way in which we feel very, uh, we take it very personally. You know. 
And actually it's just the energy of that moving through us. And we ourselves are one of millions of people, even at that very moment, who are subject to that pattern. So we're part of the fellowship of people who took a second piece of food that they didn't want to take, right, or something. The greed took over, jumped us. We're a part of this fellowship of people who are caught in anger or who are obsessed about our ex and don't want to be. Now also you're part of the fellowship of people at different times who experience generosity, who spontaneously do kind things for each other. So it's good to tune into that too. You know, to recognize that we're a mixed bag, but some of the bag is good already. There's some, some very positive, beautiful states that arise. And even with little kids, you can see this too. You know, sometimes they'll just very spontaneously be nice to each other. And the next moment they might whack each other, but like, you know, sometimes it just happens very kind, like giving something to someone else or sharing food or even pointing at someone's band-aid and going like, owie, right, you know. This is beautiful to see the natural showing up of these positive qualities too. And we all have that. So there is dukkha. If you have noticed that, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong. It actually means you are tuning into what is true about the experiential world in a closer, more refined way. You are not alone in all of this. We are all part of a human condition. And the good news is that we're also part of a tradition now of understanding that there's a possibility of cultivating the mind and heart in ways that lead to greater and greater alignment with the truth, with freedom. So here in retreat, it seems like we're doing some hard work in this way. We are putting intensive practice in of cultivating the heart and mind, cultivating awareness, concentration, metta. But the truth is that every single person out in the world is actually also on a path of cultivation, whether they know it or not. So some of you might have uh, bravely renounced going to some barbecue or beach or something for the weekend, right? All of those people who went to that place are also cultivating something, you know, in their conversations with each other, in how they're engaging with each other, in acts of generosity, in acts of anger. There's this whole game board that we're all on as living beings of this planting seeds and cultivating aspects of mind and heart whether we know it or not. And we've been on this for a long, long, long time. So even if it seems like you've learned some bad news of Dukkha, both on the retreat and in this talk, hopefully also you can see there's the good news. There's a good news that there's a possibility of change, the possibility of cultivation, of training. And of seeing that all of these things that come through are actually just passing states, passing states of greed, passing states of anger. They're all impermanent states. We get duped by them. We believe they're true. We act from them. But in the next moment, we can be free of them. 
And the more we train ourselves, cultivate these qualities of awakeness, collectedness, concentration, joy, love, generosity, the more we'll live lives that are of benefit for ourselves and for others. So we're on this upward, upward trajectory of a training path. So I also want to say that everyone here is doing a good job. <laughs> and some of you might have judged your practice, like, ah, my meditation was not going well, it's not what I thought it would be. And uh, just the fact that you're still here practicing, I say, <laughs> you're doing a good job. <laughs> Try to take with a grain of salt your own ideas about judging your meditation practice. Because on this game board of cultivation of qualities of mind and heart, we don't always know what is happening. Even in the moment of sitting still with an itch, all kinds of positive qualities are being cultivated. Patience, determination, equanimity, mindfulness, concentration. We don't see the scoreboard, you know, but sometimes when you leave, later on you notice like, oh wow, I wasn't as reactive to something as I might have been. Or sometimes you don't notice, but your partner notices. Like, oh, I seem a little bit more calm. Usually when I don't recycle that bottle, you get much madder about it. (laughs) So just this is related to faith, you know, just trust. uh, You're doing good work here. You're doing very profound work actually that will benefit you and everyone that you encounter for the rest of your life in ways that is very difficult to quantify. So thank you for your practice and all your efforts. And we have one more evening and morning of practice too. So I hope that you enjoy. I hope you learn what you can. And just stay interested, stay humble, stay curious. And enjoy dinner. Thank you. <laughs>